0: Good morning again. Let's pray one more time, and then we'll, uh, we'll get to it. Father, I pray at this time that you would uh, meet us in your word. That we know you've given us this for our benefit to build us up, and that it speaks to us in different ways. And so I pray that you would do that this morning. Speak to each heart that's here. Tell us what you want to tell us. Tell me that you, what you want to tell me as I preach it. I lean on you and look to, for, to you for words to speak. In Christ's name, amen. If you're visiting uh, Three Lakes Church, welcome. We're so glad you're here and we're in this series called Be Strong. And it's it's this idea that life is a spiritual battle, that we're actually at war. And and not just in the physical military sense, but in, in a spiritual sort of sense. That Satan's opposing us, the world's opposing us, sin is against us, and yet, God has called us to be strong in those things. And it looks at the book of Joshua from the standpoint of Joshua is written to help us be strong in the Lord. It's written not just to record how Israel entered the promised land, but how we entered the promised land. The promised land being a picture of, of salvation in Christ, of being at rest in Christ. God wants us to live in the promised land, but we've got to fight. He's guaranteed victory, right? He's going to give the Israelites the land, but they've got to fight. And so he wants us to fight. So I I'll invite you to turn to Joshua chapter 5. We're going to get right into it this morning. Uh, so go to Joshua chapter 5. If you're in a, uh, in a pew Bible, there should be one in front of you. That's page 154. Last week we looked at Israel crossing the Jordan River miraculously. They set up 12 stones to remember what God had done that day. And now they're close to Jericho, and yet they're not ready for that fight. Something else has to be accomplished to get them ready for that. Let's take a look at Joshua 5, verse 1. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord, or or Yahweh, had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until he crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, Yahweh said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeah Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All of those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of a military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord, Yahweh. For Yahweh had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in the camp until they were healed. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So, they call, so the place had been called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal, roll away. <laughs> um, the meaning there. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. All right. If you have a bulletin, there are notes in there for you to follow along. Otherwise, you can watch the screen as well. Either way uh, works. Um, interesting that, that they're about to go to Jericho, and, and, and you most of you have heard the story. I hate to ruin it for you, but the walls fall, okay? That's how it goes. I, you all kind of know that. You've sung the song probably in Sunday school. But they're not ready. They're not ready for that. They have to be circumcised and they have to celebrate the Passover before they go to Jericho. They have to go through some ritual preparations before they get there. And so I say, okay, um, God is going to give them that battle. God is going to go with them. And yet there's something not quite right about the people. And so I think about that in terms of where we're going with this series, with with being strong in the Lord and and, and fighting with his power and saying, okay, God has given us certain rituals for our strength. And namely, two. Do we have uh, the Free Church Statement of Faith, point seven, uh, Jim? Um, In in the Free Church Statement of Faith, uh, this is how part of it reads. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances. Okay, And the reason we call them ordinances, you know, ordinance means law. We have ordinances in this country. They're laws. And, and so God, Jesus set these down for us. These are ordinances. They're laws that he's given us to follow. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. And as one of my colleagues in the free church said during one of our... Uh, uh, ministerial gatherings with the pastors get together, he said, and I quote, How do they confirm and nourish me? I thought, that's a good question. What, what do they do? How, how do they help us? But maybe first it's even better to say this. If, if the Lord wanted Israel to be strong through ordinances, now, now of course not through baptism and the Lord's Supper, but through circumcision and Passover, which correspond with Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we'll talk about those how they correspond in a few minutes. But if, if God wanted them to be strong in those things before they went into battle, if they couldn't go into battle without them, then what shouldn't we be fighting battles with them as well? As a church. Fighting battles with the Lord's Supper. Fighting battles through baptism. And what does that mean? Because it seems like in the church today we're better at fighting over them than fighting with them. Right? Yeah? We'd rather discuss the mode of baptism, and I grew up in a Presbyterian church, okay? So we sprinkled the kids, right? Um, <laughs> we, we, but, but but I'm a good Baptist boy because I, I was immersed, just, just so you're all clear, okay? Some of you are about to walk out of the church right there. I know, I know. They're like, there's a sprinkling going on. I think he's implying something there. Um, but, but no, 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 no. I'd rather fight with them than over them. But to take a couple minutes and just answer very briefly, why is it that we promote a believer's baptism? We did it last week. We're going to do it again later this month. Why believer's baptism? Why not babies? And in regards to communion, why is it that we teach that it doesn't literally change to Jesus' body and literally change to his blood? Why is that? Well, let me take the first one first. The um, believer's baptism. Why? Um, I'd invite you to look briefly at Colossians 2. Would you take your Bible and go there real quick? It's nice that you can see it for yourself. I can quote it there, but um, I'd like you to look at it. Colossians 2. And uh, we're going to verse 11. That's page 834 if you're in a pew Bible. 834. Colossians 2 has a wonderful parallel with circumcision, by the way, in comparing it with baptism. Okay? It's a wonderful comparison here. It says in 2.11... Here are a few more pages. I'll wait just a second more. "...in him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism... And raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Now you could read that and say, baptism has some saving effect because we've been buried with him through baptism and raised with him through, uh, you know, through faith. But I think the key here is I read this, the, the, the prepositional phrase that jumps out at me and helps me see this through the lens of believer's baptism. And again, I'm not here to argue and tell everybody else they're wrong. But but I am here to say, this is why we do what we do. This is why we believe this, okay? Um, The prepositional phrase that jumps out at me is, through your faith. Verse 12. Through your faith. You've been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith. So when we baptized, the folks we baptized last week, they expressed their faith to the church. They gave their testimony. They went in the water and they said, I'm in. Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Yes. And a lot of you heard them say that. They expressed faith. And we're saying infants don't have that ability to do that yet. And, of course, that brings up the awkward topic of, well, is circumcision an exact correspondence to baptism? Can we just say one equals the other? Again, being raised in the Presbyterian Church, that's what my pastor told me. I think there's similarities but I also believe there's differences, obviously. Uh, because women can be baptized. This was just a male Jewish symbol. And it's been broadened to include both genders. So, so there's obviously things that are not similar about the two. And it's not my intention to argue about that any longer. But I want to show you one more passage. Would you go to 1 Peter 3? A few more pages over. 1 Peter 3 and looking at verse 21. Well, let's start in 18. That's better. For Christ died for sins. That's page 858, just if you're still looking for that. 858. 1st Peter 3:18. For Christ died for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the spirit through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. You want to know what that means? I don't know. But it sounds like Jesus preached to people maybe through Noah. And um, it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge... Uh, If you have an English Standard Version, it says, an appeal of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Baptism does not remove dirt from the body. The point is not what it does physically. The point is what it points to spiritually. He says it like this. And I think, again, this is another one of those uh, uh, words that is going to mean a lot when we talk about believer's baptism. It says here, it's a pledge. Literally, that word could be translated, it's an appeal. It's, It's you crying out to God, I'm going in the water, I'm in, I believe. I'm going in, I'm getting wet. It's an appeal to God to say, save me because I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. He died for me and he rose from the dead. That's what saves me and I'm going into the water to show the world, to show my church, I'm in, I believe this. It's an appeal to God. It's a crying out to Him. So it seems like what we're saying is believers who can speak to their faith can appeal to God better than an infant. If you were to come to me and you said, well, I was baptized as a baby. I know some of you were. Is that good enough? And here's my pastoral answer. Um, Don't take it as absolute truth. But what I would say to you as a pastor is, If your baptism as a baby is meaningful to you and you consider that your baptism, then good. Then good. But if you feel like you're missing something because you wish to, of your own free will, your own volition, walk into the water, proclaim your faith publicly, and have that experience of being baptized, then let's do it. Let's do it. I kind of leave it to where your conscience is at on that. Where are you at on that? So I wouldn't go up to anybody and say, well, you're baptized as a baby, so you're not really baptized. I'm not going to argue about that. I'm not going there. I don't think we need to fight that way. We need to fight with baptism. And I'll get to there in a minute. Okay, so why practice a symbolic communion? Why do this? Let's answer this question. And this one I'll quote because I know you've probably heard this a hundred times. Um, Luke twenty two nineteen. he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said during the last supper, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And of course, first of all, we point to the idea that this is a remembrance. <laughs> he says it. You're remembering. So, so the bread's not really turning to Jesus' body. The blood's not really turning, the juice is not really turning to his blood. This is a remembrance. It's a time to remember the most important thing about our faith that it was accomplished on the cross. But let me make one more super obvious uh, observation. And when I say it, you're going you're to groan, but, it, but it's true. It's true. When he's sitting there at the Last Supper and he's breaking the bread, you can picture this in your mind. He's handing the disciples the bread and he's saying, This is my body. Jesus' body is handing them his body. Take, this is my body. And, and so my obvious observation is, Jesus' body is literally right there before the disciples. The bread's not his body. His body's actually handing them the bread. Was that obvious or what? Okay, uh, that's, all, that, that's my only observation there, is he's literally standing there or sitting there and handing them his body, the bread. And so they're different things. And I think the disciples wouldn't have thought to themselves, oh, this really is his body. No, they would have thought his body is handing me the bread. But I do want to address one other passage, and you can turn there, John six That would be a good place to go. John six fifty-five. When I was in uh, grade school, we'd do sword drills, you know. I was at a Baptist school, and we'd open the Bible and try to get to the place first. We should do that in church sometimes, shouldn't we? You know, like, Who's got it first? <laughs> John 6:55, Page 756. My kids would probably beat me to it and embarrass me. That, that's the problem with that. Uh, okay. Uh, here's a difficult passage because Jesus is teaching about his flesh and his blood. And he says in verse 55, My flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Now, I want to bring you down a few verses, because he's going to defend what he says for a little bit. But in particular, I want you to see verse 63. In defending what he has said, verse 63 he says, The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are not flesh. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. And I think what he's trying to tell them is, look, Yeah, it's not about literally taking a bite of my flesh. The flesh counts for nothing. The flesh counts for nothing. It's the spirit. It's the spirit. These words are life and they're spirit. These are spiritual words. They're spiritual words that give life. And I think that's the out to say it doesn't literally turn into his body. The flesh counts for nothing. It's the spirit. Okay. Having answered that and giving us just a little bit of, okay, why do we do it this way? And and we could have gone on for an hour doing that, by the way. Would that have been fun? But um, I really just want to say again, please don't fight over the ordinances. Please fight with them. Because they're so meaningful. And some of us are so much more concerned about how they're done than what they're actually doing. And that requires a heart change in us. In me, because I'd like to argue about this in my lifetime. I want to get it right as a pastor. Okay. Main idea here, ordinances prepare us for battle. They prepare us for battle. Now I'm talking about battle, and I've said a lot about battle um, so far this morning, but just to be clear, I'm not promoting a militant Christianity, okay? Let's just be clear. (laughs) I'm not doing that. It would be foolish of me. And there's so many verses that say that's not how it's supposed to be. I'm not not saying that we're supposed to be hateful to people who don't think like us and believe like us. People have different morality than us. Let's Let's just gear up and take them on. I'm not saying that. Our weapons of warfare are not those. Our weapons are love and hope and peace and righteousness and holiness. These are our weapons. 2 Corinthians 10.3, Paul says, For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Okay, so Paul, you just said, We don't wage war with weapons of the world. We wage war with spiritual weapons because physical weapons can't touch spiritual strongholds. So I'm not going to advance the kingdom of God if I wage war the way the world does. It doesn't work that way. I don't know what you do with that and how you work that on your mind politically with protesting and uh, standing up and, 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 and being against different things in this country. I'll let you work that out. But you at least have to ask the question, am I really waging war in a spiritual sense? Or am I just getting mad about something and just trying to deal with it? My example. It's one thing to be against premarital sex because the Bible says it's wrong. It's another thing to treat people that have engaged in it and that are pregnant, to to treat these ladies like outcasts. That's a whole other step. That's saying, let's fight this. By somehow, by, by, by just shunning you, you know, and, and you need help from us, but we want to push you out. I love what they did in Uganda. Um, uh, as, as you know, there's, there's a lot of kids born out of wedlock, a lot of kids born with the HIV virus. And uh, one church that I was talking to the pastor of, he, his church sponsors a, uh, a lot like a fostering system. They just foster these kids that are born out of wedlock and the mom can't take care of them and she's ready to give up for adoption. We'll take them, the church says. We'll foster them. Of course, the challenge of that is where do they get the money for the extra kids, right? And so they have American churches they're partnering with that are, that are pouring money into this. But they're saying, wouldn't it be better to keep kids out of the orphanage altogether and have some of our Ugandan Christian families fostering them? What a great solution to the problem. I talked to one lady who was a worship leader in in the city we were um, adopting from. The orphanage was there. And she was talking to my wife. And how many kids did she have, Christy? Three boys. Husband's not around. But she gave her life to Christ and she knows God, God wants her to lead worship. And she has the ability. She has the talent. And yet she has these three boys she's got to take care of on her own. You know, it's hard. It's hard. But they're trying to creatively have a solution to that problem. They're waging war. They're waging war. They're helping her. Um, the whole idea of battle, one more thing I'll say about battle. Matthew eleven twelve. 12. Jesus says, For the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it, uh, English Standard Version says it like this. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. That there's an element of battle. If the kingdom's going to advance, we've got to fight. We've got to fight. And that might be in the area of your own temptation. It could be in the area of, of, of sharing your faith, going into dark places. It could be in the area of dealing with people that are really, really, really messed up. And you don't know how they're going to find a way out. The sin just goes that deep. But you step in because violent Christians, not violent physically, (laughs) but but spiritually violent people step in and say, Satan has a hold of you and we're going to fight for you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to help you. That's a spiritual kind of violence. And that's how the kingdom of heaven advances, through love and through acts of service, through righteousness with not a hint of physical aggression. Okay. So we're supposed to fight in that way with ordinances. How? Let me suggest a couple ways we fight with ordinances. Uh, Number one, and this is in your notes. Ordinances mark us as God's soldiers. Ordinances mark us. um, Go back to Joshua. Joshua. Verse Joshua 5, 2. Yahweh said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites. So that's what he did. And then it goes into this lengthy explanation about why they weren't circumcised. It apparently they were in the wilderness and all the military guys died and they were all circumcised like they were supposed to be. And now there's this new generation and they weren't. Which I find very ironic because Moses almost died because of this thing um, because he wasn't circumcised. You know, so... Moses should have known and and yet he didn't circumcise the people. He didn't make sure that was a priority. So you have this whole generation of young guys that haven't been circumcised, which is a sign of the covenant. And now they're walking into the promised land. So so the so the correlation here is that circumcision marks Israel's covenant relationship with God. Baptism marks the church's covenant relationship with God. It's a marking. You say, wait, it's an invisible marking. I can't go to work and people can't see that I've been baptized. I'm not wet when I go to work. Um, maybe we should have tattoos. Wouldn't that be better? Right? Yeah, like right here, across, right? That way you'd be marked. Well, in the same, by the same token, it's not like circumcision was an outward mark anyway. You have clothes on. But all that to say, all that to say, baptism should reflect what's in your heart. It's an appeal, remember? It's an appeal to God. Every day you should be living out your baptism if you've been baptized. Every day you should walk in newness of life if you've been baptized. And so it kind of calls you to think, is that the way I'm living? Am I walking with Christ in newness of life? Um... When we baptize people here, I, I hope that we view it as we're, we're marking more people that are going to fight for the cause of Christ. That's what we're doing. When you share your faith with somebody and they come to Christ, you're fu- they're, they're ready to fight. Hopefully, hopefully we're training them to fight. <laughs> that's what baptism is. There's more light in this area when more people are baptized. And that's what we want to see. Remember uh, Jesus getting baptized, and John the Baptist does it, and then immediately afterwards Jesus goes into the wilderness, is tempted by Satan. Baptism occurs right before a time of great spiritual testing. While Jesus was in the desert, in the wilderness, surely he must have been thinking about the words his father said: "This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased." Surely he must have been fighting in the wilderness with the devil, knowing that he belonged to God. (laughs) That he was God. And that his father spoke from heaven and said how pleased he was with him. Right? He's fighting with that. It happened right before a huge battle. The Israelites are circumcised right before the battle of Jericho. And, And God says in one verse... After it's all over, he says, I've removed the reproach of Egypt from you. Reproach. Reproach, I take it to mean, uh, the Egyptians, uh, the big joke with the Egyptians is, have you heard how long Israel's been in the wilderness? 40 years? 40 years? Remember how they plagued us? Remember how the death angel came and killed our firstborn sons? And this God was so powerful, and now they've been wandering for 40 years. They're a joke. But not anymore. Not anymore. The reproach of Egypt has been removed. And so sometimes I think we need those times when we just say, we remind ourselves, ordinances help me realize I can have a new beginning. I can have a new beginning. That I've been baptized, and, and I was that way, and now I'm this way. I, I took communion, and, and I was, but then I was looking at my heart, and I belong to Christ and I'm done with that. I'm done with it. I want to be new. See? I I pray that you go into those times of communion and you say, "Where am I at spiritually? How am I doing?" I might need a new start. Maybe a reproach has been heaped on you and you're living in shame. There's no more of that. There's no more of that in Christ. Whatever you did back there, it was so terrible, it, it's been forgiven. And maybe you do have to go back and ask for forgiveness from somebody. Maybe you have to deal with that still. But but if there's no one else to ask forgiveness from, that's done. And communion reminds us of that. Baptism reminds us of that. The reproach is gone. I hope that you fight. I hope that you fight with ordinances. The other thing that ordinances do, besides marking us and saying, you were this way and now you're this way, uh, the other thing they do is they celebrate God's victories. Number two is they celebrate God's victories. The Passover celebrated God's victory over the Egyptian bondage in Egypt. Our Lord's Supper celebrates our release from the bondage of sin and God's victory over sin. You remember Passover, the death angel comes in and if you have the blood over your doorpost, he would pass by. If you don't, the firstborn was taken. And this marked Israel's exodus from Egypt. So every time they took Passover, they were remembering God has freed us. We need reminders. We need to celebrate the things that are most important to us. Yesterday I celebrated Christi's, we celebrated Christie's 31st birthday. Um, wh- why do we do that? Why do we do that? Because people in our lives are special. they're important. Some of you don't remember dates very well, and you put it on your calendar, right? You do this, you mark birthdays on your calendar so you don't forget. Grandparents, I know you do it. Because you've got grandkids and you can't possibly keep them all straight. Well, why can't you keep them straight, right? You should just be able to figure it out, right? No, no. See, they're on the calendar because they're important to you, and so you schedule them in so you don't forget. But it's easy to forget things that are important. And so every month we take communion. We're taking it in two weeks. Every month we take communion, and it's meaningful because this is what we base our faith on Christ has died for us and so we take communion i guess i just want to ask do you when you take communion do you spend time with christ talking to him do you celebrate what he's done for you do you think about it do you ask him what he's trying to tell you today in communion when you take it what's he doing What's he up to? Is there unconfessed sin that you haven't dealt with and now you're coming to the Lord's table? Communion should be a time of meeting with Christ, not just, I'm doing the ritual thing. I'm just, I'm just doing this because we always do it. It's supposed to help you fight your battles. So I encourage you when you take communion to think, what's this preparing me for? What's Christ calling me to this morning while I take communion? Communion. What is it about his death that is marvelous to me today? It may seem funny to celebrate the death of Christ, because the death was horrible and painful, but if it helps to think of it like this, um, one thing I hate about watching sports is sometimes the good team loses. My team, right? Okay, I'm not going to tell you all my teams, but... Uh, Sometimes you watch sports, and you get so emotionally invested. Amen? And, uh, and and you're so into it, and the emotions are so high, and then by the end of the game, your team loses, and now you're on this low, right? The bad guys won. Because we know your team is pure and righteous, right? They have a good cause and a good school, right? From a good city. That's your team. And then they lose. And when it's a championship game, like the Rose Bowl the last three years. Or is it two years? I can't even keep track. But it's hard. It's hard. Because you get so invested in communion, we find that the loser, the one who lost his life, has won. He's won. He, 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 he lost his life on the cross, which makes it look like the game ended and he's in the tomb, and yet he rose from the dead, and so we can celebrate communion. Communion. It was his victory over sin. If there is no tomb, then communion can't be a celebration. It just can't be. How do you celebrate sin killing your Savior and keeping him dead? You can't celebrate that. But you can celebrate it if he beat death, if he conquered sin, if sin doesn't have the last word. So celebrate. Celebrate during communion. As odd as that may sound, it's right. It's right to feel these feelings of great emotion when you take communion. Let me end with this. Um, I'm not going to go here long, but um, if you look just at the end of chapter 5, Joshua was near Jericho. He looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither he replied, but as commander of the army of Yahweh, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of Yahweh's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I think this whole chapter is wrapped in this holiness idea that that we are a different kind of people. We're just different. And, And baptism and the Lord's Supper help us be different. Holiness means set apart. You're different. You're not like the rest of the world. And I know, I know what you want to know is, who's the commander of the army of Yahweh? Who is this guy? Is it Jesus? Is it a, a commanding angel? Those are probably the two most popular answers. Let me give you evidence for both. Jesus, well, evidence for Jesus Joshua falls face down to the ground, verse 14, in reverence. It looks kind of like an act of worship. And when John falls down in in worship to the angel in Revelation, the angel says, Get up! (laughs) Don't worship me. So is this reverence? Is this worship? Ah, It's a little little slippery there. What is he doing? Is it honor? And then he says, The place you're standing is holy. That kind of sounds like burning bush language, doesn't it? Moses, take off your sandals. This is holy. Okay. Sounds kind of like God in a physical form. That'd be evidence for Jesus. Maybe it's not Jesus though because the commander of Yahweh's army, commander implies a inferior officer in the army. There's there's Yahweh and there's the commander. I mean, that's how the word was used back then. Commander was not the top guy. It was down here. If you go by linguistics, you might say, no, that's probably a commanding angel. I guess I lean that second way. But I'll let you talk about it over lunch. How about that? That'd be good? See what you think. I just want to encourage you that when it comes to baptism, when it comes to communion... Please, don't see them as just rituals that we do. See them as life-giving acts that remind us of the most important essentials of our faith. And then live it out. Worship team, if you come up, I'm going to pray for us, and we'll sing one more song. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for giving us reminders of how good you are. Giving us reminders of the most important things in life giving us the symbols of baptism in the Lord's Supper. I pray that when we come to the table, when we go into the water, we see it as your kingdom advancing here on earth. Father, I pray that this church would baptize so many new converts, so many new Christians. May you draw them in. Father, I pray that you draw us to your table in two weeks when we come to it and help us have a fresh understanding and experience of the cross that purchased our salvation. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.